Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray, and the Metro's George Belshaw. George, how are you? Yeah, Jow is very well. I wish I was called Jow. <laughs> Good. Delighted to hear it. Uh, and of course, our resident tennis coach, Calvin Beton. How you getting on, Calvin? Very well. Very well. Good. Uh, all round, everyone excited for the pubs to reopen next week. Um, Easter weekend is over. The first of, I think, three bank holiday weekends in the next eight in the UK. And hopefully a little bit more freedom to do things for once, including playing tennis. More on George's tennis career and an interestingly named injury later, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> coming up on today's show, we're going to ask whether Ash Barty has proved the point that she insists she never had to prove. Um, we'll ask whether Bianca Andrescu is primed for a re-breakout like Denim. Um, and if Hubert Perkat is going to usher in a new era as a role model for players who hit the ball with their eyes closed. Uh, I sympathise, Hubie, I sympathise. Uh, we've also got a new feature coming up. We're going to be picking our dream doubles pairings. Each week we'll have a different theme, hopefully a little bit topical. We're going to start off easy. We're going to be picking our dream footballers doubles pairings. Um, and then later we'll talk about the French Open as well, which could it really get postponed again? George will give us the latest on that. First, though, there's really only one place to start. And in the words of LMFAO, it's Miami Girl, where Ash Barty picked up the 10th title of her tennis career. I say tennis because she's a cricketer and a golfer too, an all-round sports person. Um, George, those questions about Barty, whether she was a true number one, I'm not going to say they've been answered because it is just like a, a Masters 1000 rather than, you know, a Grand Slam or multiple Grand Slams. But I think she's certainly, if not sent a message, she started writing a letter. Yeah, I thought she was excellent this week. Um, you know, uh, I, 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 I was really looking forward to the final. Um, I, I've been on holiday, as you well know, so I, I, won't, I won't lie and say I've plugged in and watched every minute of Miami. I've been too busy pursuing my own failed sporting dreams again this week. Um, <laughs> but I did sit down and watch the final and okay. Yeah. It ended with Andrescu uh, withdrawing, but I thought Barty was really quite phenomenal before that. She had a complete grip on the match, um, served really well, pegged um, Andrescu back into her backhand. Andrescu just never felt like she really found any rhythm. Um, first meeting for them, of course. So it should be, in theory, the first chapter of many um, of what should be a really good rivalry um, over the next decade because they're two brilliant players. But, you know, I, I've said a few times before with Barty that, you know, she's had this status for a while as the number one ranked player where everyone's been a bit like, okay, well, she's not played for 12 months, but she's come back. She's won two tournaments of four. Um, reaching the quarterfinals of the Australian Open, where realistically she should have made the semi-finals and probably the final, um, and just generally looks in quite a good place, quite a good shape. We all know she's a naturally brilliantly gifted sports um, player, but you know, being Ostapenko, Azarenka, Sabalenka, Svitolina, and Andreescu to win a title this week—that's a tough run. Um, so it's great to see her back and she clearly feels she's got a point to prove and I have to say she's proved it this week pretty well. Well, I should point out, George, actually, on, on the point to prove point um, that she was asked that in her post-match press conference quite specifically, you know, do you feel you've proved your point? And she basically said, no, because I didn't have one. Like, And I think that's kind of what I love about Ash Barty at the moment. She's She's very comfortable in herself and I think that's what she has gained from that year, you know, spent at home is that she has basically just been able to, to be comfortable and she's come back and said, you know, all right, I mean, I didn't drop any points, but no one gained many on me either. When, she, when she's saying she doesn't have a point to prove, you know, in the same breath she's saying, I know people are talking about this and I know this is a, something that's kicking off, you know. She, she is someone who likes to play things down. She's not someone who runs out and kind of shoots from the hip. But the way I kind of was reading and hearing this when uh, watching this uh, conference, you know, it was just a very assured sign to the rest of the tennis world. You know, you you can think whatever you want of me, but I am the queen bee. And everyone else, you know, let's be honest, we've all been thinking Naomi Osaka is the best women's player in the world. And I'm not sure my opinions necessarily changed on that this weekend. I still personally have my doubts about Ash Barty in the biggest matches in Grand Slams. If you look at the French Open, she won 
was she really beating the very best on the way to winning that or kind of just beating what was in front of her. But this week, very high level set of competition. But if you're asking me who's going to be winning more Grand Slams between the likes of Barty, Osaka, Goff, um, even Andrescu, if she stays fit, I'd probably have Barty at the bottom of that list still. But at the minute, she's going to prove us wrong and long may it continue because she's a great player, great all-surface player and good for the game. Calvin, I know you don't like the the rankings systems as they are or certainly as they're continuing to be. Ash Barty's picked up another 40-odd weeks at the top of the rankings, you know, in in the all-time stats. Is that fair? Do you think she deserves that? No, but there's not much she can do about it either. I think she wouldn't have been world number one if we, if they'd have played the whole time. She wouldn't have stayed world number one if they'd have played the whole time, but no one should have really a ranking about that. Well, yeah. Too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I mean is, even if she'd have played, even if, if everybody would have played a full year, I yeah. think Osaka would have overtaken her. I mean, I, but I do think it, it's really good for the first time that I can remember. Actually, you've got four or five really good female players all playing well at the same time. You've got Osaka, Barty, Andrescu, Muguruza, um, Sabalenka coming in as well and then I think Goff's probably going to come big this year um, so it, yeah I mean it's exciting in the women's game at the minute you you can't pit you've got a genuine night if the French Open it'll be one of you could say it's equally equal chances one of five players who could win it mm. and it's that weird thing as well because when you look at the rankings Garbini Muguru is number 13 in the world but I mean yeah. that's kind of an anathema because we, we know she is on form and were the rankings not the way they are, she'd be top five at the moment, no, no doubt about that. Um, yeah. But yeah, as you say, the, there's a couple of women, you know, right at the top of their game, who who are playing space. I think good tennis to watch as well. You know, if you think yeah, about Barty, Barty's good to watch, Sarka's good to watch, um, Sabalenka's very good to watch, Muguruza has always been someone I've gone out my way to watch, and I think that's very good for the game. Yeah, I think there's other players as well who are like good contrast players to like take them on in big matches and stuff, you know, like Halep and Kennan as well. You know, mm. I think there's just a, a really nice balance of, I would say, like 10 very, very strong. We, we spoke about Jen Brady on this um, podcast yeah. before. Um, Azarenka's come back in there. Um, you know, from a British perspective, we're hoping Joe Conta wants to get herself back in the frame, but. And of course, even Serena Williams is still kicking around. But, you know, it's it's a really exciting time. I, I think we're, it's certainly in my lifetime, I think this is has the potential to be like the strongest generation. I mean, they're all younger than perhaps, you know, that era where you had, you know, Davenport and the Williams sisters and, you know, Sharapova coming through as well. You know, that, yeah. that was very, very strong. Uh, Henning. Uh, Kleisters, mm. you know, that that was a really strong uh, women's period. But this, to me, feels like we've got five or six multiple Grand Slam champions, hopefully, coming through at the same time. Um, I mean, you haven't you even know, mentioned Sviantek. Sviantek, yeah, exactly. Because she's, she's too far down the rankings to even find quickly Sviantek. You know, she's 16. And that, that's where we're talking about a false economy as well. You know, Sviantek, we've said on this podcast, top five player. But actually... Is she? You know, the, the depth is is, is Fiontech <laughs> top five. I don't know. Like the depth is yeah, so there good. Are, there the are about fifteen players now that we're like top five player. Must be. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> that's, that's kind of the openness of it. Um, most of all, about half of them are heading to, to Charleston this week. I think Barty playing there. Kenin, um, Benchich, Kvitova, Magruta are playing there as well. So um, decent bit of tennis going on there. Um, we should talk uh, about the other side of the net in the final in Miami. Bianca Andreescu, as you mentioned, George. Um, she, I mean, it wasn't. It was this wasn't a uh, an injury that you know was a, a stress injury. She she stumbled basically and tripped over a foot and seemed to sprain her ankle. Which you know anyone who knows Bianca Andreescu's story, this was her first final since the U.S. Open final in 2019 when she she broke through and she pretty much subsequently spent 15 months on the sideline, albeit a 15 months when there wasn't a lot of tennis. But she had that knee injury. She fought back to fitness. She didn't play ahead of the Australian Open, and we're we're all a bit worried that we might be seeing, you know, a, a recurrence of something. But she does look back to be back to form. She she couldn't have shown more match fitness this week. I think she went to three sets in every match except for her first round match. 
and she beat some really good players. Even Sarah Cerebus Torma, who, who is unseeded, the only unseeded player she beat pretty much, even she is at career high ranking and in great form. So, um, Calvin, I know you're a big Bianca Andreescu fan. Um, she's still very young. It's a young age to come back from a big injury, but seems to have found form again, which suggests that it's not been too bad for her. Yeah, and I think it's a, you know, it's a good age for it to happen. Um, I don't think there's any sort of long-term doubts. It, it wasn't one of those, like, if, if there's certain injuries that you have sort of serious questions about, serious back injuries, that kind of thing. But I think it was pretty, uh, pretty much a clean injury. Mm. Um, and she came back. She was pretty much playing, I thought, like she was in her prime. There was no, I mean, there was no hindrance or anything because... Um, Your late dinner's uh, coming back at you here, Carl. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> I can't believe that. I don't know um, but, um, yeah, she was, you know, it's, I guess it's hard to tell as well because she's quite a sort of upbeat, happy character, isn't she? So she's not one to moan about injuries, that kind of thing. Um, I thought she struggled in the final. I, I, I watched the final and I thought her main problem was she plays a very similar game to Barty and Barty just hits the ball five miles an hour faster than Andres Gunas. Hmm. And that's a real challenge. I mean, we, we've seen there's matchups you get like that, isn't it? When it, it's almost two players, it's like um, we've sometimes said it with Dan Evans and Roger Federer. Like oh. they they play quite a similar game, uh, but but Federer just does it better. And you know that that's kind of and actually I suppose that's the challenge for a young player. You know, Andresco, as I say, she is only twenty, um, and she has to find a way to to play a different game. And all right, the opportunity didn't come. But George, you were impressed with what you saw. Yeah, it was, and I think you know, I think the the idea of growth is going to be important with Andreescu. You know, she's got a bit of a reputation now as an injury-prone player, um, mm. which you know other young players have had. You know, Djokovic had a bit of a reputation of being an injury-prone, bit of a quitter. I, I don't think people are calling Andreescu a quitter for what it's worth, but um, you know, it was interesting actually. She, the way she was talking about her physio or tra- fitness trainer kind of saving her this time and how she was listening to him and making sure she wasn't doing more damage than was necessary. And I think that that was a little bit of a sign of maturity. You know, Miami is an important title generally, but, you know, you don't want to be ruled out for the whole clay court season um, on top of it. And, you know, she's someone who I think what we're really seeing from her is she will just go deep in tournaments if she's fit. You know, she, if you look at her rise and how quick it was from 150 in the world to world number four in that kind of nine month streak or whatever it was where she won the US Open, you know, pretty much every big tournament she was playing, she was turning up, winning huge matches, getting to finals, winning titles, uh, winning the Rogers Cup, uh, winning the US Open. You know, she's a big match player. She loves it. She thrives on it. The US Open final, you know, I was there for that in New York. And, you know, that was a tough atmosphere. You know, the crowd is desperate for Serena to be equaling Margaret Court. And she just takes her out in straight sets, even when Serena's kind of coming back in that second set. She kept it cool. So I, I think she's a brilliant, brilliant player. Great variety, great mindset. Got everything about her. There's just that one lingering concern over whether her body's going to allow her to get into these positions but hopefully it's all just premature concerns at this stage I think also what what I'm so happy about and what I'm impressed with with these group of girls is that and it's only a small sample size we're only three months into the year but there's there's a level of consistency that we've not seen in the women's game for some time Um, and it's that's how you develop star status and that's what sells the sport well when you've got stars and you know they're going to be around We've had a few years of somebody would win a slam and then they'd lose. Somebody would win the Australian Open and then they'd lose first round of Indian Wells and Miami and that kind of thing. And there was no sort of consistency to anything. Whereas now we've got we got four or five girls that are winning. They're making the last stages every week. That's how you mm. sell a tournament. Yeah, it's someone you can put on the poster and, and isn't out in the you know first three days, isn't it? Or, yeah. or isn't going to pull out as, as happens with most tournaments these days. Yeah, you put up a poster and then no one actually turns up on the poster. Anyway, um, I, I want to ask either of you really about Andrew because we're about to come on to the clay season and Andreska coming into you know a bit of fitness and a bit of form. She's got very limited clay record in the professional game. She's actually only played nineteen matches of <laughs> professional tennis on clay, um, and quite a lot of them were basically at the same twenty five k three weeks in a row. 
in 2017. So we really don't know exactly what she can do on that surface. George, am I right in saying you might have predicted her to win a slam? I, I, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure I've put her down to win the French Open. Um, do you stand by that? Has she got the game for it? I, I think she's got the game to play on anything. I think she's such a smart, good field player. You know, when we're talking about Barty before, you know, Barty's brilliant on grass. She's obviously won the French Open, which, you know, for me is her worst surface, really. Um, I see Andreescu in exactly the same mould. She's got great feel. I've seen her play on clay before and been pretty impressed. Um, I'm pretty sure she pulled out injured of one of the French Opens. Um, yeah, she's 20... played, she literally played French Open main draw once. 2019, um, was it? Yeah, um, and she beat yeah. uh, Buzkova in the, fir- in the first round and then withdrew when she was due to face Kennan, So Yeah, but I think she was playing when I saw her in and around that period. Looked absolutely fine. I, you know, okay, Am I going too far to say she's going to win the French Open? Possibly, but I, I don't see you why not. You were feeling particularly bold on that dark night in December, clearly. Yeah, I, I, I actually just, I think she's such a good player and I just think she's someone who will always turn up to matches. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that seems a bit weird to say when she's just pulled out of a final with an injury, but I mean, she, she is a scrapper. She's a fighter. She won't lose many Grand Slam matches where it's not given absolutely to the last at the end I, I just really I really rate her I think she's a better all-court player than someone like Osaka who it doesn't come to naturally um, yeah I, I, I'm not saying she's going to do it but why not I'll definitely stand by her if she's fit <laughs> well Calvin's also picked her to win Wimbledon so I mean if, he, if, Which, if she fulfills any of this she's going to be that, a hell of a player but I think that goes to the, prove the point really that we think she'll be good on as we love to call them the natural surfaces um, we you know because <laughs> we, we love to call. Yeah, yeah. It, it was decided by Twitter. The record, that was right. the purposes of the tape, the Love Tennis Podcast does not love to call them the natural surfaces. George <laughs> Bell loves to call them natural surfaces, but um, he's an all-court player. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know she's won a slam on hard. But if you were going to ask me who's the one player most likely to win all four of them, I think Andreescu of this crop is probably my number one if she stays fit. Mm. Um, let's move on you mentioned Naomi Osaka there and I I did want to talk about her a little bit Um, she's finally lost this year Uh, she was beaten by Maria Sakari who and I know this has kind of always been the case with Maria Sakari but I watched a couple of her matches this week and my goodness is she in some nick I mean just in terms (laughs) of physicality like I've not she's so defined she she wears the sleeveless shirts which helps she's got massive guns She's really, really strong through the trunk. She's just like, I, you know, it reminded me of Amelie Moresmo in terms of like that sheer physicality of someone on the court. Uh, Calvin, I think I mentioned this in the WhatsApp group and you were like, yeah, she's, she's a bit of an animal in the gym. I mean, this, she's not any more developed this year, is she? She's always been like this? Yeah, she's always been like that. Um, and I, I, I don't know how it is, but she's more, as we said, she has more cut as I believe the uh, the gym lads, yes. the pro the protein lads refer to it as. Um, a, f- a phrase that would never bother us three, I guess. But, um, well, speak for yourself. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. um, this is a podcast, we can pretend that we're all bodybuilders. I know George yeah, tries. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a unique build she's got. Um, it's strangely though, she doesn't play like you'd imagine somebody like that would. She doesn't come sure. out and just destroy opponents with power. Um, yeah. she's athletic but yeah it's, you know she's a good player she's been close I think to a few players I think am I right in saying that she got close to Serena at a couple of maybe not the slams but one of maybe Miami or Indian Wells or something like that and, and hasn't quite been able to get it over the over the line I think she lost a close match to Conta in the Fed Cup over here when it was at Bath maybe mm-hmm. um, sounds bright but but um yeah, she's a good player. Another one of those who I, I, I don't think she's in the the top echelon, but she's one of those who none of those girls in the top echelon would want to come across. Mm. Uh, and Georgia, you know, the reason we're talking about her is because she did beat Naomi Osaka, or which you know we sometimes say is good for the game when the top players lose. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, just just first on Sakari, I think she's definitely someone I see being a top ten player. I don't necessarily see her being top five um good because there's not think, a lot of room left in your top five there's not a lot of room yeah i've already got about 15 in there so I've got 50 in my top 10 so um but you know i, I think 
I, I would say a ceiling for her would be about seven or eight. That would be my guess. Um, mm. But, you know, there's a lot of good things in her game. And particularly this year, she's had really good close matches against a lot of top players, which either narrowly lost or come close to it. And as you say, no one will be wanting to face her early on in the slam. Um, on Osaka, yeah, I think it was actually quite a good thing in a way for her to lose. I mean, on the one hand, you've got the point Calvin kind of alluded to earlier where you you want these players to be building up a profile and, you know, Naomi Osaka, if she goes an entire calendar year unbeaten, for example, that, that would bring massive profiles to the sport. But I think it, it's important as well that other rivalries are allowed to develop and other names are able to get into the spotlight. And I think it was important to get Barty back in the spotlight this week. Um, you know, that is, she is the world number one, but how many people outside of tennis would be able to name Ash Barty as world number one? I, I probably yeah. would say not that many. Like, people know Naomi Osaka, like, casually now. Uh, people know Coco Goff because of that run at Wimbledon. Do people know Ash Barty here that much? probably not yes. so much so it's good to start building her profile as well and obviously Andrescu similarly um, you know it, it's all good for the game to get those names out there mm. and then, yeah you, you, I, I wouldn't want Ash Barty to get the sort of what I call the Caroline Wozniacki treatment you know where, where she, she did eventually become famous partly because she dated Roy McElroy but also because she became famous as the world number one who'd never won a slam and I think you know had ne- I never never seemed to figure uh, at the top tournaments. So, yeah, I mean, Barty, you can't accuse her of that. It, it is slightly different. But I think there was a danger of a narrative developing that was like, here's Ash Barty, who happens to be world number one, but none of us think she's the best player. She, she did at least get there in the end for Caroline and yeah. left she, that, that group. Yeah, beat yeah. Hallett, wasn't it? But um, You never quite married can you, na- can you name the players who are still in that group? What, world number ones who've never won a slam? Yeah, all the men who've done this. Yeah, Dinara Safina's one. The, the only men's one is Marcelo Rios. Correct, yeah. Is he really? Ah. Yeah. And yeah. is there another woman? Yes, there's at least one more. Pliskova. Um, yeah, Carolina Pliskova. Yeah. Uh, okay. There Very might good. be a... There's, there's actually quite a wide list of players who've gone to number one and then won a slam after. There's not so many in the men. I think Lendl might have done it. Possibly. But anyway, right. in the women, there's people like Halep, uh, and then Kleisters, I think, might have done it as right. well, possibly. Um, but yeah, there's not so many. Uh, I think only Pliskova and Safina. Oh, oh, the other one is Yelena Jankovic, is one of them. Yelena Jankovic, there's a name I haven't thought of in a long time. Yeah. And, and there might you know, be a fourth. Anyway, we'll, we'll come back to it. Yeah. Um, more on this you know just without wanting to get too tangential it, it is quite important for a sports number one player especially an individual sport you know for the person to be world number one to be a, a genuine world number one you know or and and on top of that someone who people like you know when brooks kepko the golfer was winning loads of grand slams i mean it wasn't a major sorry it wasn't interesting Golf bot 3000, me and my golf mates used to call him because he's not a particularly interesting bloke. But when Jordan Spieth was doing it at the age of, you know, 22, winning everything in sight, he was the best player in the world. He was an interesting guy. He was open. And that really matters. You know, if it's someone who's not winning the best tournaments, I think I think it can be quite damaging, as Calvin said a little bit earlier, for for the sport. Um, that pretty much wraps up what was a, a very good week uh, in Miami on the women's side because pretty much everyone was there. Uh, on the men's side, the same cannot be said. Uh, it was a severely depleted men's draw in terms of the top players. There was no Federer, no Nadal, no Djokovic, all for varying reasons and with varying degrees of likelihood of them going anyway. Um, it left the draw wide open, you would think, for Daniil Medvedev and Stefanos Tsitsipas. Dominic team, of course, wasn't there either. Uh, neither of them made it through to the final. Medvedev finally lost. Tsitsipas finally lost. Zverev bombed out early, which I suppose surprised almost no one. Um, but he still overtook Roger Federer in the world rankings, by the way, which he's delighted about, of course. Nevertheless, it threw up a final no one predicted. I can say that with some confidence. Um, Hubert Herkash up against Yannick Sinner. A great week for both of them, of course. The final was their biggest match of both their careers so far. I think we expect at least one, if not both of them, to have several bigger matches in their stars. Uh, George, how did you see the final 
it was always going to be a nervy occasion. It only looked nervy on one side of the net to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I had this down a lot closer than some other people did. Um, I, the, bookies, I actually, the, the bookies, for the record, had Sinner as a 68% favourite. Yeah, I, I had it closer than that. I, I mean, I, I had Sinner, Sinner as favourite, but not by much. Um, yeah. I think if this final was taking place in two years' time, Sinner would be those odds. But right mm-hmm. now, um, Hercut's got a couple of years on him. He's a good player as well. You know, look, I, I think... I think I've heard Hercats kind of actually compared to Thomas Burdick. That I think that's the sort of career I actually see him having. I think he can get as high as like world number five, world number four, but maybe struggle to win a slam. Um, right. That that's kind of he might win a slam, but he, he he's going to be a good pro, I think, and he's got a lot about him. People have compared him to Andy Murray in terms of looks when he wears his cap and <laughs> kind of similar backhand. Um, he's got no, a better like second it. serve than Burdick. Burdick's never had a second serve. That's why he never won a slam. There we go. So maybe he will win a slam then. But, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's nice for him, first Polish uh, player to win a Masters. Um, and I think it's one he'll look back on his career. We all think Sinner's going to be pretty bloody good. So if we look back on this one in the future and be like, cracky, we you know, won a Masters 1,000 against a guy who's gone on to win whatever, five slams maybe. Um, mm. been world number one so yeah good for him and I think he's up to something like number 16 now in the ranking so it's a good push that's a good seeding at slams it's onwards and upwards I, I think he's someone we'll see being a pretty good solid steady pro yeah he's he's kind of you know we do need more young guys breaking through We've, we always say that but there is also this kind of level between 10 and 30 where there's a heck of a lot of guys, you know, 30 and older, um, some of whom are clinging on to points. How Gail Monfils is world number 13 at the moment, I have no idea, <laughs> given that he's won two matches in the last 15 months. I mean, God love him, and congratulations to him, by the way, because he just got engaged to Alina Tutelina, um, and they're getting married over the summer, I believe. Don't ask me how I know that. I'm just a sad person. Um, but, you know... <laughs> That there are quite a few guys here who, who Hubert would look at and think, well, if I'm not better than you now, I, I will be better than you in the next couple of years. Yeah, and again, I think if you look at this run he's put together, it's not just about the final this time. If you look at the names he's beaten. You know, Ryanich, who is still a guy who's turning up and getting to quarterfinals in most events he's playing. He's still a tough guy to beat. Uh, Shapovalov, who you know we all rate, even if he's not necessarily winning the tournaments, that perhaps he feels he should be. Rublev, who's been an absolute monster outside the slams. Uh, Sissipas, who, you know, along with Medvedev, you'd have had down as the favourite for this tournament. Yeah, That's, a, that's a, about as tough a run as you can get without in a tournament without Djokovic, Federer and Nadal, really, I'd say right now. So, yeah, yeah great I'm credit not great, to him. Not, not great matchups for him either, I would suggest, you know, in terms of stylistically, you know, guys who, guys who can out-hit him on the baseline in, in terms of, well, maybe less so Ryanich. I would suggest that playing Ryanich in Miami on the this year is probably the best matchup you can get with Ryanich because it was blooming hot. The courts were pretty slow because they're still pretty new. You know, I, I wouldn't mind you playing him at the time. But as you say, the other ones and, you know, Denis Shapovalov in the second round is, is not an easy draw by any stretch of the imagination. So, yeah, I think we should pay tribute. Because you know, by comparison... We all think a great deal of Yannick Sinner, and I don't want to go on about him because we've said a lot about how much we think of him. By comparison, he had a relatively simple run to the final, playing a couple of form players, but, you know, Batista Agut, Karen Hatchinoff, Emil Roussehori, who has a lot about him, but isn't necessarily, you know, I think he's still 70 in the world or something. So um, a slightly easier run. It, It certainly opened up in that sense. But yeah, I mean, huge day for both of them. Uh, Calvin, you've said a lot about how much you think of Yannick Sinner. What do you think of Hubert Hercash? I, I know he's played doubles with a few British guys as well, so he's clearly a relatively popular guy, although I know that's sometimes a marriage of convenience. But in terms of game style, uh, what do you think of him? Yeah, he's very good. Um, I think George has summed it up pretty well. I expect him to have, I think he'd be a regular in the top 10. Uh, I think we'll see him in a fair few quarterfinals, maybe make the odd semi-final um, at a slam. <laughs> I, I don't think he's a slam winner, but you never know. 
you get every, why, every sort why, of... why would you look at him and say he's not going to win a slam? Is it because he lacks weapons? Is there a weakness? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just that, just just a lacking of weapons. If you look at people who've won slams, if if take away the big four, if you will, mm. and you look at the players who've won slams outside of that, Vavrinka, Del Potro, even sort of before that, Safin, they they tend to be yeah, Chilich. They tend to be guys who can just just hit hit a dream run of form for for four or five days, and that's how they do it. I, I struggle to see her catch doing that, um, but. You never know with the slams. Every every seven or eight years, a draw just opens up, and somebody said that the most solid player wins it. Mm. Yeah, George. And just to add to that, you know, I think the period that's coming up in men's tennis is about as good a time as you're going to get to get yeah. a guy like Hercats winning a slam. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if he was coming up five years ago, say absolutely no chance but in a time yeah. where Djokovic is going to be you know 38 when her cats is 28 you know that that's a yeah. good window for someone to be hitting their peak so yeah he, he's got a chance and I, I think he'll do well on the ATP tour generally I, I think four is genuinely where I'd see link mm. in that what what surface if you had to pick one surface for him to to win a slam on which one would you pick either of you Hard I'd for say, me, but um, I'd say if if Nadal isn't around, I'd say the French, mm. um, purely because the poles and people from that country tend to people from around that area normally tend to be pretty good on the clay. They have a lot of clay courts up there. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah, as you mentioned earlier, George, he's the first Polish man to win a Masters one thousand. Um, event. There's also a notable record uh, which you've noticed on, on the national front, um, not the national front. It's not that sort of podcast. Um, <laughs> in terms of nation, uh, with so many by-elections coming up, you've got to be careful with this sort of thing. Uh, George pointed out to me uh, in his notes that we now have, for the first time, I think I'm right in saying, ten Italians inside the top 100 in the world, which is pretty amazing when you think about it i mean i can't imagine many countries have ever achieved that if any in fact although i'm sure can, can you both name them that's the quiz i'm, I'm literally looking at the rankings at the moment uh, so can calvin name them? <laughs> uh, no. i don't know if calvin could name 10 if you're listening um have a go on your own i'll give you one for free because he's the latest one to move into the top 100 uh is Gianluca major or, or mayor or major m-a-g-e-r um, he, I think, won a Futures and maybe got to the final of a future, so he, he's moved back into I, the top 100. You know, I actually think I'd have got all of them apart from the last one, just because I thought yeah. he'd be nowhere near the top 100 at this stage of his career. But yeah, I think exactly. the rest of them I'd have had. Yeah. But that, I think that's uh, a bit of a curveball. I, I don't know if you would have got world number 67, Stefano Cavalli. Yeah. No, I yeah, 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 I, uh, I know, I know. We, we will, we've talked about Italian tennis before, and I think we will have to revisit it maybe in a a quieter week when there's less flying around because I think it would be really interesting to talk to a few people involved in Italian tennis and um, the system that they've created. It's not a coincidence. They've got two of the most promising young guys flying around in Mazzetti and Sinner and also, you know, plenty of depth. So we will talk more about Italian tennis. But we've got to move on because we've got a new segment uh, to introduce. It's a dangerous idea from the melting pot uh, that is my brain. <laughs> um, dream, we're we're going to call it dream doubles to begin with, and basically the idea is that we pick uh, a dream doubles pairing from any particular category. Uh, it's a loose rip off of something I saw on a rugby podcast four years ago, but that doesn't really matter. Uh, we're starting, I guess, easily this week with footballers. Not even anything more specific than that, uh, George. I think I asked you this question a few days ago to prepare for it, and you needed less than thirty seconds. To name your uh, doubles pairing, introduce them to us. So I've got Didier Drogba and Jack Grealish. Who anyone who knows me will know they're my two favourite players. <laughs> yeah, George, George of course is from uh, from the West Midlands and is an Aston Villa fan. So naturally, he has a tattoo of Jack Grealish. No, of Didier Drogba. Uh, why do you have a tattoo of Didier Drogba, George? Uh, well, my my nickname actually is the drog. Um, right. I, ironically, why? it why? started why? when I was, so when I was 17, um, I 
was playing in some like adults league on a Wednesday night, and then we used to like, go clubbing adults, afterwards. Not like an adult league. It wasn't like a yeah, star yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, the, the former. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I used to go out clubbing afterwards with my friends because I am obviously a Jack Grealish wannabe. And, and even a though, before, yeah, and a legend. Um, so one week. I'd scored a hat-trick, and it was a bloody good hat-trick, I have to say. There's some fantastic goals. Um, right. And I, I was basically being a bit of an arrogant knob, which you, I'm sure you can't imagine. Like, I'm sure no, it's really hard to believe. Yeah. So I was just going to my mates, you know, scored a hat-trick, I'm the freaking drug, I'm a legend. Um, and then they all just started kind of mocking me, being like, oh, you're the drug, you're the drug. And I was like, yeah, I am the drug. And then uh, people have ironically called me the drug since. And right. you know, the, tat- the tattoo, le- less said about it, the better how it came about, probably. But Right. Um... Well, that's maybe a story for another day. Maybe, maybe <laughs> in, in, a, in a bonus podcast during Wimbledon. Um, but why, why, why did you Drogba as your doubles pairing? Yeah, Drogba, I mean, obviously big, powerful guy. Um, I imagine you have a pretty big serve. I imagine he'd be pretty solid at the net. You know, I can see him being a bit of a wall. Um, but I think most importantly is that the fact that Drogba always turned up for the biggest moments, the biggest matches. Uh, and in, uh, and in tennis, you know, we talk about players all the time. Like, there's not much between many of them. It's, but it's about those big points and how you deal with it. And I just think Drogba would be converting all those break points and, you know, <laughs> serving down an ace when he's facing one, that sort of thing. So that that's my... That's my logic for him. Um, and then you've got to keep Jack Grealish out of the pubs long enough to play with him. And Grealish, you know, you guys know I'm a lover of Kyrgios. I, I see Grealish in the same sort of mould, um, like a complete artist, just someone you love to watch, just very entertaining. Uh, I can imagine Drogba kind of grounding him and getting the best out of him, you know, kind of <laughs> eventually like coaching him through. It'd be kind of like the Andy murray Kyrgios partnership if that was happening. Um, right, okay. But you know, it, you just would love to watch it, and you know, he'd, he'd have all the. He'd be like the Andre school of tennis, into, into, of football. You know, in terms of like well, amazing short drop shots, really crafty play. Um, and again, Grealish does typically turn up to the big matches. He loves it. He loves the big occasion. Loves the crowd. He'd be well, he uh, the big match. Oh, England! You know, he turns up against the top ranked team and out. You know, flicks it over Munia, that sort of thing. So on the court, you can imagine him just like tweenering Nadal out of nowhere, <laughs> Drogba being like, "Come on, Jack, let's win this. That's that's match point, mate. Let's put it to bed." Okay, um, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, all right, I can get behind that. Um, yeah. We'll leave it to the listeners to decide which they prefer. Uh, Calvin, who have you gone for? My pairing is Dwight York and Andy Cole. Wow, wow, that is, so, yes. that is strong. But tell me yeah. more about the great partnership. Um, well, we don't, my thinking is that, I mean, it, it's all about one thing. It's doubles partnership. It's all about chemistry. These two had the most <laughs> chemistry of, of any strike partnership um, ever, probably. They were the strike partnership in the greatest season that any British club has ever had. Um, and they win things. They win mm-hmm. things and they don't need any justification. The, the, the chemistry is there. They, they're, they're reading each other's mind. They know exactly where each other is. They know who's taking the middle balls. Um, they can both don't put the ball away. Don't they famously hate each other? York and Cole. No, they're I mates. thought they didn't get on off the off uh, the Sheringham and Cole. Sheringham and Cole uh, hate each other. Uh, um, so now we have to mates. wind up Calvin's dream pairing. Is we just get Teddy Sheringham as the chair umpire. And that, and that's the, game <laughs> the Carlos Ramos. Uh, Sheringham and, Sherring, and, and Cole were very good together on the pitch. They just hated each other off the pitch. And it all stemmed from, the best thing was that nobody knew why. And then I think it's in Andy Cole's autobiography that when Andy Cole made his England debut, he came on for Teddy Sheringham and Teddy Sheringham didn't shake his hand. And he never, he never, he never, he never forgave him for it. Wow. As he wow. as he walked off the pitch, I think Sheringham was pretty mad that he was getting taken off, and he didn't shake Cole's hand. And Cole never forgave him for it, even even in the throes of winning a treble, he still couldn't forgive him for it. And scoring the equalising goal in the match that won the treble, Andy Cole still couldn't forgive him for not shaking his hand. <laughs> the grudges are being held long in your double. Yeah. but yeah, that that's 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 the correct answer. Is Cole it, and yours? It's as a double pair. Okay. Um, I've, funnily enough, I've also got a Manchester United player in my uh, doubles pairing. Uh, it's Luke Shaw. 
which I don't think any of you would have predicted. <laughs> but let me let me tell you something about Luke Shaw that will blow your mind. You will be genuinely surprised when I tell you that Luke Shaw is six foot three inches tall. He is a surprisingly tall man. He's six two. He's six two. He's honest, but he's wearing tennis shoes, so he's six three. And he, he, he is much bigger than anyone would ever imagine. He covers more of the court. He's got a bigger serve. Everything about him. You come and stand three feet inside the baseline and think, this lad's not going to hit it that hard at me. And boom, there comes the big Luke Shaw serve. He's also left-handed, and I have checked this. He is left-handed. A nice out-wide serve. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get behind Luke Shaw. It's also double, so he doesn't need to run around too much, which is pretty big for a man known as Fat Luke Shaw. Uh, yeah, he, he, he's going to pair up with um, Petr Cech because we need more height. If you don't think Luke Shaw's that tall, uh, Petr Cech, former Chelsea goalkeeper, he's also Czech, which helps, you know, good good tennis tradition in the Czech Republic. I also happen to know he's very good at table tennis, uh, so I'm hoping that he can maybe translate some of that uh, into the, the larger form of the game. I, I was very close to picking James Milner as a really kind of like gritty baseline grinder but I think he's more of a singles man I just I just think he's going to be the Diego Schwartzman of the piece oh, I can't believe you've not gone for John Milman that's, that's the I, obvious I, I thought my, own, my only doubt about my only question about whether I'd go with York and Cole was a, a sort of true story here that um, a mate of mine used to coach at David Lloyd Cheadle which for anyone who doesn't know is David Lloyd in Manchester and mm. one Sunday afternoon uh, he take we had a sort of WhatsApp group with a few coaches from around the north of England, Yorkshire, Lancashire. And one Sunday afternoon, he texted us saying, "If anyone wants to come along, uh, Sergio Aguero is currently playing singles against Diego Maradona in <laughs> David Lloyd's Cheadle." Because if anyone doesn't know, Sergio Aguero, uh, Diego Maradona was Sergio Aguero's father-in-law for yeah. about yeah. three years. And he'd obviously come to see him, and the two of them were, were striking a few balls. So I, I thought about going with that, but... Um, <laughs> There's not a lot yeah, of hype I'm, there. No, I would also be worried about one of those players passing the drugs test. What do you mean? On the hype thing, I, I was like kind of half considering like a Costel, Pantillamon and Lucina Triore double. Yeah, like that, something that really point, like uh, six foot nine. Pair of his well, I thought about Peter... I thought about Peter Crouch, but he just doesn't look very coordinated. He played tennis with Andy, didn't he? Quite yeah, recently for sort some of, sort of proposal. Sort of, it's a sort of joke, although jokes. No, he used crazy. to play. He used to play seriously, Crouch. I think. I think oh, I'm right really? in saying. Uh, I say seriously. Like I'm. I'm pretty sure he said at 13, it was the choice between tennis and football sort of style thing. I think he did actually play growing up, like to a semi decent level. But if you're 13 and like six foot eight, do, do they not just make you play tennis and basketball on the basis that you don't even have to be very good? <laughs> Probably. Like, I, I just assume. I don't know. Um, very good. Uh, what we will do is uh, we'll put the three uh, pairings to the test, to the vote, because we know that plebiscites are the answer to everything in this country. Um, if you follow us on Twitter, then you'll see it. If you don't, it's at Love Tennis Pod. We'll put it up there and you can have your say on which pairing you prefer. George, I assume you want some of impassioned defence of your failure. Well, I, I, I just hope we're going to clip the videos and let people hear the explanations as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's got to I mean, be done. That would only be fair. And obviously, editing and, you know, free work that I have to do. But you know, I'll just invoice <laughs> you. Um, thanks for that, George, for on air stitching me up to do more work than I already do. Fine, fine. I don't have a full-time job. I work for the eye. I mean, they're very... Let's move on. The clay court season is coming around the corner quickly. Also, by the way, sorry, I just want to add, uh, because uh, I also want a postscript, that I really wanted to pick Luis Suarez, because I think in terms of people to play doubles against, Luis Suarez would be the worst person in the world. Like, you turn up and be like, oh, no, it's the bloke with the teeth. Oh, this guy. Honestly, just like contesting every line call. Like... And, and calling lines. His, his own yeah. line calls would be yeah, horrendous. Exactly. Yeah, well, <laughs> that, if, if we're allowing calling their own lines, that, that really would change the debate of who we're having. That, that would be a Luis Suarez Pepe team, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sergio Ramos, maybe. Sergio Ramos, <laughs> exactly. Um, let, let's move on to Clay briefly. We've got a bit of time. We, we've moved quite swiftly today. I'm impressed, lads. Well done. 
Um, the clay season is kind of just coming around the corner now, uh, or is it? Uh, George, we were chatting uh, over WhatsApp about the French Open earlier this week. And, well, where are we? Postponement, cancellation, none of the above? Yeah, it's, uh, basically the answer is it's very up in the air at the minute. Um, I think postponement's a very serious possibility. I, some are talking cancellation. I, I personally would be very, very surprised if it was a full cancellation, I think. If you look at the calendar and how far that was scheduled ahead, they did it purposefully first half of the year because, in theory, they could guarantee that. And obviously, this has changed a little bit for the French, but that that second half of the year has been purposefully left quite open. Um, there are serious question marks over the Asian swing, from what I'm hearing. Um, I will try and find some more definitive answers on that. I've just been on holiday, so... The yeah, things I've heard have we not don't been ever expect you to do any real work. Stacked I do all the sweat. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I think there is certainly I wouldn't guarantee there being action in China, for example, this season. I know Indian Wells is already trying to lobby for a later date in the calendar. Something they said they were gonna do at the time, but that there are serious talks going on around that. Um my understanding of that is the WTA at the minute are um happy for that to happen. Um, the ATP are currently not so happy. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that lies. But look, at the end of the day, if a Grand Slam wants to move, you remember last year, it was a very, very much the French were just like, right, we are moving this and dropping here and you have to deal with it. I, hopefully it wouldn't be that same approach again. And hopefully, you know, with all this collaborative tennis talk that everyone's going on about, um, there would be a bit more working together. But at the end of the day, a Grand Slam will take precedent over, you know, ATP 500 events dotted mm. in whatever Beijing um, and if as is the case seems to be stuff like Shanghai might struggle to go ahead um, based on you know Chinese restrictions then that seems to me that there would be a window to postpone it but the, you know this is all conjecture at the minute it may well go on ahead behind closed doors I, I, I still think that's probably the most likely scenario for the minute the behind closed getting doors. Fa- I mean, thing. getting fans in, I think, you know, uh, given that France shut their schools, which people don't know, they shut their schools for three weeks uh, last week um, because of a, a spike in cases. They've just brought in more mask regulations. They previously, for people who live in Britain, this will sound crazy, but they've just made masks compulsory in all enclosed public spaces. That, of course, has been the case in the UK for the best part of six months. Um, and, and we know that the vaccine rollout programme in Europe hasn't hasn't gone as well. Um, so it kind of depends on Paris as much as it does on the rest of France. I think actually the rates in France as a whole are quite low, but but it's really more on the the local levels, which in France I think are still in Paris. Sorry, are still relatively high. Um, I desperately hope it goes ahead. I have kind of given up hope on going as a journalist, partly because while actually the newspaper would insure me and I'd have to quarantine for two weeks on when I get back, that's not too much problem. It's as much the risk of getting stuck there. And also, uh, you know, I don't really want to be in Paris if everything's shut, you know, and I could, and it kind of, it's kind of the Benoit Pair thing. It's like, as much as I want to go and cover the tennis, and that's like the main reason I'm there, it's also like, what's Paris if you're just going from, you know, Roland Garros to your hotel or Airbnb and, and rinse and repeat? It's not really the whole experience. And you can imagine that players, especially those who haven't seen their families much this year or whatever, um, might think the same. Yeah, and I think the other point that's worth making on that is like the protocols in place. You know, you're not really brushing shoulders with anyone so much this time. Everyone's being kind of kept completely separate and apart. Um, it'd be interesting, like we've got the Fed Cup coming up um, next week, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about next week um, mm. leading up to that. But, you know, that that'll be quite, an interesting experience that's going to be down the NTC where some of us are going to go down and watch that. Um, but you know, will we even be in the same room as people who knows and probably kept at quite a far distance? I think they're still planning on doing a lot of press conferences over zoom. So people who can't be there can be there. So, you know, there's less, I don't know, value to a degree of being there. Um, but still obviously value in terms of covering stories on the ground, but, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's not as straightforward. 
it, it's saying. funny uh, without without wanting to talk about the media too much, but maybe as a little insight into into what we do for people. You know, when you go and cover a live event, you could do it off the telly, uh, and the difference with being there, it's not really necessary the being there. Yeah, you might you know see something a bit differently or hear something a player says or pick up a little snippet, but it's as much about the chatting to people on site, building relationships with people, getting to know tournament officials, tournament directors, agents, players, and, and all of that. That really is, is the job. And, you know, that's how we, we get into a position that we can, you know, bring you information and bring you cool stories. Trying to do that over over Zoom and over WhatsApp, you know, it's really hard. Um, and, you know, I can speak as someone who, whose tennis beat has increased over the last 12 months. It's been virtually impossible uh, to, to really build those relationships. What's funny, and I don't want to get too tangential on the media, um, is that I was talking to someone who works in investigative journalism the other day and works with a lot of whistleblowers and things, and he says it's never been easier for people to blow the whistle on the company they're working for because they don't have to like you know sneak away from their desk to make an illicit phone call and worry about who's overhearing them. They just turn their webcam off and ring you. Um, so it's quite interesting what you know what's been easier for journalists and what's been harder. Um, Calvin, you're obviously in touch with with a lot more players on on a, a different level. Maybe not French Open necessarily a consideration, but what what state is the tour in at the moment? Is it still palatable to be travelling around the world, or or is that starting to get harder with as different waves get harder in other places? I think it changes from week to week. I think generally worldwide, it's it's in pretty good shape at the minute. I think I think the players think it's opening up a little bit and it's moving on. Uh, but then you get something like with, I don't know if this is confirmed, but there's strong rumours that the futures that were going to happen in Britain in May in London aren't going to happen anymore um, due to sort of the government wanting it to be more of a bubble like would happen at Wimbledon. Um, mm. And it, that not really being feasible for futures level players just from a financial point of view. Um, they would have to be able to kind of stay if the British players who live in London would have to be able to stay in London, stay in their own houses and think they'd want them to be moving into hotels and that kind of thing. And it's just not feasible, the, the cost of it um, to do that. Um, so, yeah, I, it's hard to say. I think it, I do think it changes every week. But as a whole, it, it's there's certainly more tournaments going on every week than than there were the week before. So you'd imagine it's moving in that regard. Mm, the right direction. I mean, it's that that funny thing, really. I I think we all have to kind of manage our personal expectations about life. You know, we we've just had an announcement in Britain today that that um, the pubs are going to be opening again next week, albeit outdoors only and with various stipulations. But you know that that date has been in the calendar for a while, but with a kind of caveat that it might not happen. And I, I said before we came on air that. I'm not quite believing it until it actually happens. And even then, because we've had it twice now where they've given us freedoms and take it back, it, it feels so far away. You know, I really naively thought Miami was going to be the beginning of the rest of my life from a tennis perspective. And it's clearly not going to be that. I, I don't know how you feel, George. I mean, you've obviously been back playing over the last couple of weeks, which has maybe felt a bit more like normality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think from my whole perspective on it now is just I, I'm desperate to not go back into that full lockdown again. I, I'm just I, I found this one so much more difficult than the other ones. Like just crap weather, you know. As you say, it's like the freedoms coming back and being taken away again. I think stuff like having tennis and football come back from that original lockdown. You know, the first lockdown there was a kind of novelty to it to a degree where you're kind of like discovering your local area a bit more you're like oh this is a bit nice you know the weather's okay i'm not you know it'll be nice to be playing tennis but there's a novelty to it stopping but then it realizing how much you missed it then in that period getting it back to have it taken away and you know while i I totally understand the full policy reasons of it when you can go for a walk in the park two meters away from someone but can't stand 20 meters away from someone and whack a ball you know, even though there is a wider policy considerations on that front than mean they brought that in, but just in terms of an action, it is it is a bit frustrating, I suppose. Um, so, mm. you know, from my, I guess, as you're kind of saying, it, it, it's all this uncertainty, but you, you're desperate not to be dragged back into the 
complete abyss, I suppose, now. But mm. fingers crossed we're getting there. And I, I think, you know, to bring it back to tennis a little bit, we can be about as sure as we can be that Wimbledon will go ahead in some capacity. Um, mm. You know, I don't think we'll be in a French Open-esque situation um, in this country. I bloody hope not anyway. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm still pretty confident there'll be a decent number of fans um, in there. And even if there's not, it'll just be nice to have that on again. Mm, yeah, agreed. Um, I, I think it, it, it's prudent as well to mention that some people have been playing tennis throughout, you know, elite players in the UK have, have been able to train, Calvin. I know you, you've still been working a bit, but presumably there is there is a, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, about what is defined as an elite player in terms of, of using those facilities. I mean, it's a relatively low bar without wanting to do anyone down. Yeah, it's top 20 in theory. I think there's maybe been some, a bit of leeway there. Because it's hard to tell who is the top 20 in Britain. Is it on the rankings? Is it or if somebody's been injured, that kind of thing, do they still count? So I think there's been a little bit of leeway. In theory, it's top 20, but also I think they've sort of extended it to maybe... Because also some of those in the top 20 wouldn't... Um, they don't live in this country. Some of them may even have stopped playing tennis uh, full-time. Yeah. So I think they've maybe extended it to the top 30, and then some juniors as well have been allowed. Like, in, so it's kind of anyone who wants group. to call themselves a professional tennis player. Um, yeah, and also some who don't in the juniors. Uh, no, I've I've not heard of anybody who's not been able to train who plays full time. Uh, put it that way. So, um, and also a lot of players have got a lot of players have been away. Like a lot of the guys, have, I know some guys who uh, went away in January and they've not come back in the country yet. They've been sort of wow. Dubai, over to Egypt, to Turkey, over to the States for a while, back to Egypt. Because they wouldn't be able to train at home in theory, so they've just gone on the road. And I think mm. some of the lads have been. I think Liam Brody's been away now for about seven or eight weeks. Um, mm. Evo's been away since since Australia. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because he went straight to straight to the Middle East, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It's a long long road, even for even for tennis players. Um, you mentioned Liam Brody, by the way, and we should give him a little bit of congratulations because yep. he's up to career high 150. Two in the world, I believe, um, and he's into main draw in Cagliari this week in Italy. Uh, nice in draw as well, isn't it? Another qualifier. Yeah, quite possibly. I, I haven't looked at it. It is before. a straight, strange draw there. The, the four qualifiers all drew each other, and, and oh. right next to each other in the draw as well. Because qualify, <laughs> qualify, qualify, qualify. Yeah. Um, and one other uh, British congratulations to, to Fran Jones, Francesca Jones, who. Um, I'm not going to say friend of the pod, but beloved of the pod because of her run through Australian Open qualifying. Um, she's a terrific story and a terrific player. She's up inside the uh, well. She's she's world number two hundred exactly now, um, but she will go another ten places almost certainly uh, next week. Uh, she got to the final in Villa Maria. I think she lost in the end, but she's going to go up to 190 in the world, which is obviously. As we always talk about, as you ladder up these rankings, it, it gets you a little bit further. It gets you into, you know, she will still have to qualify, for example, for Grand Slams, but she might get a seeding in qualifiers for Grand Slams. Not far off, but it all it all helps. Um, congratulations, fan. She's now the British number four as well, which um, is maybe just a little a little boost for her personally. Um, brings us looming into any other business. George, you've usually got some other business, but you look strangely blank. I think I am blank, to be fair, wow. James. I think you've covered everything. I was just going to say that the tournaments next week, Marbella and Clarari, they were kind of emergency ones, weren't they? I just thought that was worth briefly bringing up. In terms of they couldn't get things on in the normal events, I think like the stuff in Marrakesh, those places couldn't take it. So these kind of were drop-in ATP 250s who've taken over for this year, and I believe this yeah. year only. Um, okay. So I just thought that was worth saying. But yeah, I think very particularly much, exciting. Um, Marbella doesn't have a monstrous draw because there were loads of dropouts as far as I remember, but lots of players who we didn't think think would play it anyway. But uh, yeah, it's uh, we'll keep up with them. The, the women are in Charles. Um, the only thing I'd say before we go is uh, Pro, UK Pro League on BT Oh yeah, plug your commentary, Calvin. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm going to get on Sunday. 
conversation. Hey. But before that, uh, every day on BT Sport Extra and on YouTube, um, both courts are uh, streamed, and there's some decent players in this year. This week, I think it's the highest, the overall highest ranked of any of the weeks. Mm. Yeah, Anton Mitusevic and Jack Draper both in. They're in separate pools, so we think that that will be. You know, barring a couple of upsets, um, the final on Sunday, which is on BT Sport Main on on the TV, so that that'll be a match worth watching um, with two two pretty pretty rising stars of the British game um, and uh, an interesting matchup. We were talking about their their head to head they played last year, and it went went to a very tight Champions tiebreak. So uh, it should be a good set of matches. I think that's everything from us. If you're not already following us on Twitter, please do. You can vote for your dream doubles this week as well. Um, please do leave us a review as well. It really helps us find more listeners, get more people into the community and talking about tennis. At Love Tennis Pod on Twitter. Leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. We don't mind as long as it's a nice one. See you later. See you guys. See you later. Bye-bye.